best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hi, good evening to you. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson here as well. If you are a first-time listener to this program, we certainly appreciate it. And we ask that you buckle in because we're not going to sit here and talk to you for 500 miles, but we're going to talk to you about those that do. Because, Mike, this is beyond the bricks where, once again, and we are thrilled to be doing this for a second year in the month of May. We've done it during the Brickyard as well. But, you know, every once in a while... I just stopped to think to myself, this is really fun. It's really cool because the Speedway is so special to me. It is so special to you. And to be able to share it with those others that have the same zest, Mike, we're pretty darn lucky. We are pretty darn lucky. And I think people would say that I probably could talk for 500 miles though, right? I mean, just based on what we've done so, so far. I would <laughs> talk 500 miles and I would talk, yeah. Now you're right, both of us probably could, especially about this subject, because, listen, Mike, you know, I, I want to make sure that people know this. Um, we both are very appreciative of this opportunity because people that listening, we're just race fans like they are of this event, right? I mean, all of us have that special thing inside of us that makes this track and this race so special and you know oftentimes it's a family thing or a friend's thing or just a nostalgic thing but you know every time you 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 go past it and especially if you go in there and any of the other 11 months of the year you're just thinking about how it comes to life in the month of may and here we are yeah absolutely and and when we talked about, uh, you know, when we created this show last year, I was kind of thinking, you know, what's the show going to be? And I kind of, it's exactly what I was hoping it would be. It was just kind of, you know, bench racing almost every night right on the air, talking and swapping stories and and just sharing memories. Because I, th- I think this event is so, it's just, it's so incredibly unique the personalities and and the the people and the drivers that have made it so special but the you know other people off the track who made it so special you know we've you know we've talked in the past about Donald and Tom Carnegie and and people like Sid and you know there's just there's just so many different people that we can talk about and share memories of and 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 swap stories about and and so many people who mean so much to so many people out there listening that it just it's really special to me and I, I really look forward to doing each show because, uh, you know, the opportunity to talk about people that are my heroes, I just lo- I love that opportunity. And so I feel really blessed to have this chance. Such a great part of this show, Mike, is accentuated and really told. I mean, we're we're just kind of the, you know, steering the ship and landing the plane for the incredible audio of driver interviews from years past, race calls of years past, uh, you know, advertisements during the race from years past and those are all just so people know that all comes from mike thompson and we do this in a very um kind of rudimentary form at least for me you do the heavy lifting i simply you know you and i text and say eh, 
what do you say we talk about so-and-so? And then within like 10 minutes, you come back and say, okay, I've got 38 audio clips. And I'm thinking, good Lord. How does it all come about for you, Mike? Where have you been able to accumulate all of this audio, if you don't mind sharing that? And how hard is it for you to to pull the fantastic stuff that you do that people enjoy? It's just been working over time, just putting together an archive that, uh, you know, from the different different sources that I've been able to source material over the years. But it's just, uh, you know, we, we had a great archive at uh, WIBC I've been able to tap into. And then just over the years, uh, you know, there was honestly one of the best places was there was an incredible back in the day. I think they called it the tape trading communities, you know, those those type of people. And, and it really started. I don't know if you remember the television show Mystery Science Theater, um, you know, with the, the little robots that would make fun of the movies and stuff. And and there was, you know, tape trading of, of that type of thing. So you people could watch different episodes of different shows. Well, you know, back in the I, I, this is like the 1980s. There was a you know a group of a community that would that would say you know hey I've got the uh, you know a, a, a 1973 let's say the 1973 Indianapolis 500 on on disc and it's from San Jose California from a radio station there are you interested in hearing that you know and and there are there are laws you can't sell that I mean because you know you don't own the you don't own that property you can't sell it for a profit you know anything like that but what you can do is you know, you can make that available for, for research or you can make it available for, for someone else to hear. And so there was a, you know, community that, that really cropped up. And, and some of those people have come up with some just amazing audio. And, and uh, one guy locally, I, I'm happy to shout him out because there's a guy, uh, John Darlington, who's a good friend of mine who runs a company called First Term Productions. And he's come up with some just amazing audio over the years that he's shared with me. And and I mean, going back to the early 1950s, some of the things that we've played of uh, of Sid and and uh, you know early shows of Speedway Gossip, he found some of those things um, just in you know his work buying old old reel to reel material and things like that. And then you know I I bought a bunch of reel to reel material, and you know I remember last year you know we we played uh, our our friend from. Uh, you know the 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 midget race with our our friend from here he comes and there it goes oh, yeah you know, that's one of the we, we gotta we gotta bring him back again this year for for at least one night so uh but you know i bought a bunch of i got a bunch of reel to reel material from that station you know that i i think personally I, I i have no i can't prove this but i think i may be the only person in the country who owns you know races on on these you know what's called paper tape of old midget races from the 1940s i mean so it you know it's a long answer to your question but you know i've i've just been lucky to to come up with this amazing archive over the years and so you know i've got i've got huge huge files on um you know on ssd drives and so you'll say hey let's talk about the you know topic a on this show and then i just go to work and i said saying okay well i've got this 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 and this and what do you think you know so that's it's honestly really fun for me because uh you know i like to be able to say to you okay i got about 20 clips and and what do you think the best seven of them are for tonight's show you know it's uh it's definitely fun and tonight's episode of beyond the bricks is both sad but also triumphantly joyous because it's talking about one of the true gentlemen to have run the Indianapolis 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But since we last talked to you in terms of this show, folks, 
beyond the bricks. Uh, we lost Al Unser. He passed away on December 9th of this past year, some five months ago, a little over uh, five months ago, I guess. And, and Al Unser is somebody that when you want to talk about steady, smart, and patient race car drivers, odd as that may sound, and just a true gentleman of the sport, then I think you probably don't have to look much further, Mike, than the man who was born on May 29th of 1939 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, talking about Alan Sr. Uh, absolutely, and an absolute master tactician driver. I, I, I think I said, maybe even I've said that last year, but when we talked about it, but the fact is that just, I don't know that he gets enough credit for what a strategist he was behind the wheel and a tactician and how much, you know, thought he, he had behind the wheel on strategy and tactics. Uh, just, I think he was just a master tactician. Um, and just one of the, just the absolute, absolute greats of all time. And, and I, I have said for a number of years, I think personally has the finest statistical record of anyone who's competed at the Indianapolis 500. Um, you know, obviously tied with with AJ and and now Elio and and Rick with the four wins but I think you know when he, you you look at someone who's you know he led the most laps of anyone in the Indianapolis 500 you know most top 5s most top 3s you know I think I think statistically he has the finest record and the fact that he was so competitive we've talked about before I think so competitive late into his career leading laps in his final two 500s you know 92 and 93 but but just an incredible gentleman and incredible driver. Al Unser, who was a rookie in Indianapolis in 1965, of course, is the oldest man to win the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But the racing bug, of course, he's the brother of Bobby Unser. He comes from a tremendous racing family. And for Al Unser, even though he is still thought of as somebody who was driving well into his later years from racing standards, Driving is something that actually began for Al Unser as a young boy. Yes, it is. Yeah, it was a Model A pickup. And I was running, they kind of, my brothers had a kind of a racetrack laid out out there that they, that they were running super modified soon by then in Albuquerque. And uh, so I was out there one day and, and uh, rolled it over and uh, went back in the shop and, asked for some help to get it back before my parents got back from downtown. And they just laughed at me. Well, they helped me. My brothers helped me and the employees that my father had there helped me. But as soon as they, my parents got back, it wasn't five minutes before my father called me in. So, you know, he knew more than I thought he knew. You know, or my brothers or the employees told them, you know, that I just rolled the car, the Model A over. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, eventually everybody knew that Al Unser was driving cars because, again, he came from that famous racing family. But, Mike, in 1965, he showed up at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and maybe some people might be surprised as to where it was that every once in a while he got a lending hand. Yeah, I mean, it, what was interesting about 1965, you think of someone as talented as Al Unser, you would think, okay, Al Unser is going to take the rookie test and jump in a car and he's going to breeze. He's going to qualify on the first day, maybe fifth, sixth, 
something like that. Like, uh, you know, that happened with, with Mario that year and, you know, just, just breeze away and, and everything's going to be fine. Well, it was a struggle for Al senior that, or Al Unser at the time, it was a struggle for him that year. And, and he was in a number of different cars and just could not find a combination that looked like he was going to have an opportunity to race in the 500. And it, he was pretty despondent about it until at the last minute, he got uh, some help from a really unexpected source. It just, uh, by that time when Foyt walked in, I thought I was through because it was Sunday and I said, man, you know, when, when you miss that race your rookie year, I always felt that, and I still do, that the car owners won't have anything to do with you because you didn't have the talent to make the race. So when Foy walked in the garage and he says, I have a, my second car, if you would like to come out and try it and, and you know, we'll get try to get it qualified, if think about it and come over to my garage. Well, when he walked out my garage, I followed him. You know, I mean, you got to be kidding. That was a break that that you know I never dreamed would happen. And AJ being who he is and was then, it was just an honor to have him even first come in and ask me. And then you know he we went out and we run ten laps. We came back in, he called me and came back in and we're sitting in the garage and he walks over to me and he says, we're going back out and we're going to qualify. And I almost choked because I didn't think I was ready to qualify. But he just, he sat down and explained everything to me, what to do, how to do it. And we went out and I don't even remember going from the garage area to the pit apron out there, and I really don't because I was, I was just there with so many things going through my head, you know, of trying to make sure that I didn't make a mistake and I said the right things and all that, you know. Time I got out there, got in the car and just lined it up and qualified it, and I mean it was Floyd was without Floyd's help and and giving me the break that he gave me. You know, I don't know what would have ever happened to my racing experience, but it, it really made me happy and proud. And here's the thing. Al Unser did anything but choke, actually, when it came to qualifying in his rookie year, starting 32nd in that Sheraton Thompson Lola Ford and then bringing the car home in the ninth position. That would become a trend in the racing career of Al Unser, being patient, knowing when, to go and knowing when to hold back just a little bit. He started 23rd in 1966, finishing in the 12th position. And then in 1960, in 1967, a runner-up after starting in the ninth spot. 1968, he started 6th and finished 26th with an accident 40 laps in. And then 1969 rolled around. Who's to say that every once in a while Al Unser didn't have a little bit of adventure in him as well that – obviously could cause for some curveballs to overcome. Yes, it was, yeah. We were in the garage area, and if you look up in the record books, it was that was the first weekend of qualifying, and it was raining. So it rained out Saturday uh, for qualifying. So Parnelli, we're standing in the garage, and he says, let's take a ride on the bikes until the crowd gets out of here. 
you know, we'll just kill some time. I said, sure. We jumped on the motorcycles, and we were just riding around in the infield, you know, and not doing wheelies or anything like that. You know, I wasn't. And because uh, I wasn't that good on a, on a motorcycle, so I sure wasn't. And uh, I went down in a bar ditch, kind of, I call them a little side road ditch, you know, for drainage of water. And when I came out, I was sitting too far back on the bike, and the bike did the wheelie, and I just kicked the bike loose where the bike stopped in midair and fell over, and the kickstand went through my, my ankle gave me a compound fracture. Well, that just, you know, Parnelli comes running over to me and he says, you okay? I says, I think I broke my ankle, my leg. He says, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. He says, you'll be all right. <laughs> well, we went to the hospital and it was a compound fracture. <laughs> and then, after that, missing that 1969 race, Mike, that's when things took off for Al Unser and... For the man that passed away in December, he gave us plenty to talk about moving from 1970 forward. And I say we dig into those audio archives and do exactly that when we come back. Sound good to you, Mike? Sounds good to me. All right. We're talking about the four-time winner, Al Unser, on this edition of Beyond the Bricks on 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. A handsome man from Albuquerque, the blue number two, and he got quite a hand up here. The crowd rose as one when he came by, and that's a great tribute to a great driver with a great car. And now here is Sid. Al Unser, the checkered flag, the winner of the 1970 Indianapolis 500-mile race. As dominant a performance as one could imagine in 1970 when Al Unser and the Johnny Lightning P.J. Colt Ford led 190 of the 200 laps en route to his first Indianapolis 500-mile victory. And not only did that set off a decade, a career of dominance, Mike Thompson, but the reality, as you were mentioning to me in the break, is it also set off an incredible run of consistency for the man from Albuquerque. Yeah, you mentioned the fact that he had an accident in 66 uh, when he was teammates with Jim Clark. And then he had an accident in 68, but then he never had another accident in the Indianapolis 500 after 1968 until he, he retired in 1993, which I think is an incredible statistic. Um, just an amazing, amazing statistic, I think, talking about Big Al. You know, the, the thing that's interesting to me, Mike, about Al Unser, and we'll hear from Al Unser about that 1970 win here coming up in just a moment on Beyond the Bricks, but if you think about drivers and so much of and you know i've you know you and i've done entire shows about car names and that kind of thing i don't know that any car more resonates with people that saw it on track and they remember the name and the sponsorship and the paint scheme and everything else than the johnny lightning that just holds such a special place to so many people yeah, absolutely. And what's funny about that, I think you and I have talked about this, is is Al wasn't that excited about it when they pitched it to him. He called and, and said, uh, you know, he talked to his, his uh, team owners at the time, and, and they said, hey, we got sponsorship from Topper Toys, and it's going to be the Johnny Lightning special. And he's like, he's, he flat out said, I don't want to be Johnny Lightning. I don't want to be a toy, you know, and and they said, no, it'll be great. Don't worry about it, you know. And and then they, you know, he saw the paint job and he, you know, he was convinced by the fact that the paint job was pretty cool and 
and the fact that it ended up being so great and so iconic. But, uh, you know, he laughed with me when I talked to him about it because he, I mean, he in no uncertain terms said, I do not want to be Johnny Lightning. <laughs> so I think it obviously it turned out great and it, and it is an absolutely iconic car and it's one of my you know, favorite, favorite cars of all time. But uh, to Big Al at the time in 1970, he was not convinced that he wanted to be Johnny Lightning. Well, it turned out okay for him because he started that race on pole. He finished it up front, as we mentioned, in dominating fashion. Here is Al Unser talking about his first victory in the Indianapolis 500. Parnelli and Bell Militich thought that something was going wrong with the car. Well, I had such a lead, I could just back off and I... You, you 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 hear all your life of the last few laps of that race how people how the driver can hear bad things happening and this is going wrong and that's going wrong and it, it's really true you know you you want something so bad and then here you are you it's within striking distance of two laps or a lap and a half and boy I'm telling you what your nerves all apart, you know, and I came out of that in the turn four the last lap, and I looked down there and could see that checkered flag. I says, oh, please, just stay together for a few more feet. And then you get the, you know, checkered flag, and it, your mind just goes bananas, I think, you know, of, of saying, man, I finally have done it, you know. Here's a race that, that I hadn't even finished yet. Well, at first year I finished ninth, but not not running good. The car was only running on six, seven cylinders. So, so all of a sudden, you know, you you end up winning the race, and it is just a fantastic feeling. That was the second time in three years that an Unser would win the Indianapolis 500. He matched his brother's win total at that point because Bobby Unser had won the race in 1968. But, Mike, in true competitive fashion when it comes to brothers, Al Unser said, you know what, it's kind of cool that we both won the race once, but uh, I'm going to go ahead the next year and take the lead over my brother 2-1. to one. And that Johnny Lightning paid off for him again a year later, didn't it? Yep, Johnny Lightning Strikes Twice was a really kind of a cool slogan, wasn't it? And uh, worked out really well. And what's interesting about the second one is, uh, you know, Al told me at the when I had that opportunity to talk with him, he said, hey, 1971 was a lot harder you know, people think that it was really easy because we, you know, we led a majority of that race too. But he said, really, that was a lot harder for us the second time because the McLarens were so fast. Uh, Peter Revson in the in the the works McLaren, he said Revson was really really quick, and he said we really had to work for it. Where he felt in 1970 they had the field pretty well covered, but you know he was really proud of that 1971 win because they really really worked hard to beat. Uh, Peter Revson and the McLaren team. So the question going into the month of May of 1971, as you had mentioned, can Johnny Lightning strike again? The answer was yes. Blue car with a big number one, and he is number one. And now to call the winner for the 24th consecutive time is our chief announcer, the voice of the 500, Sid Collins. And here is Pat Vidan waving the checkered flag for Al Unser, winner of the 1971 Indianapolis 500-mile race. So you would have thought based on that that Al Unser was just going to dominate the 70s, right, Mike? And then as so often happens when it comes to the Indianapolis 500, you know, the, the track kind of makes sure that, that 
it, I'm not going to say settles the scores, so to speak, to balance things out, but things did kind of balance out for Al Unser because after 1972, kind of hit a patch there where you, you wondered if things weren't getting away just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the VPJ program, uh, the so-called super team, you know, Al got second place in 1972. He was uh, he didn't finish second on the track, but he was elevated to second after the penalty to Jerry Grant. Um, but in the record books, it's a second place. And then uh, the, the so-called super team, they just, at Indianapolis, started having a lot of difficulty um, after, after the wins with uh, 70 and 71. And, you know, by that time, the, the program ended up, uh, you know, it just didn't, it just wasn't working out after that. Al managed to, you know, he managed to seventh in 76 and he, you know, he got third, I think in 77, but, uh, you know, it took, it took moving on to, uh, to, to Jim Hall's team to really establish him as a threat to, to win the race again. And of course that coming off of, and again, couple of years in there were just the, the electric gremlins get them, right? 1973, he had a piston, 75 laps in. He had a valve in 1974, was not able to finish the race. Then 1978 rolls around, and here is Al Unser again coming into the speedway, and you knew going into it that he was going to be in the first National City car, first National City traveler's checks, mind you, uh, Mike, that he was going to be fast, qualifies fifth. But once again, when it came down to it, Al Unser over the course of three different stints leading the race, there was just something about the fact, Mike, that he knew when it was go time. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it was an interesting combination there with, with the Jim Hall team because uh, it was a bit of a volatile mix, I think. And and what's interesting about the fact uh, with that car, I think I, I think I've shared this with you before. One of the most interesting things a driver has ever told me about a race car was Al Unser talking to me about uh, Jim Hall, the, the the Super Speedway program in 1978. So you look at the results of that team, and you see that. In the history of IndyCar racing, championship racing, there's one person who won the Triple Crown, who won all three 500-mile races in one year, and that's Al Unser. Won at Indianapolis, you know, won at won at Pocono, uh, won at uh, the Ontario 500. He's the only one. And if you, when I talked to Al Unser, I I thought he was going to say, "Man, that's the best car I ever had. It was, you know, you know, it's just a supercar, and it was just, you know." you know, just kind of glow gush about it. That's the way Bobby Unser talked about the 1972 Eagle. When I talked to Bobby about it, I mean, Bobby just, I mean, you would have thought, you know, you know, Bobby, it was just like almost like a son to him because he was just, he's so proud of that particular car. He was just, just beaming about talking about that car. And I thought, you know, when I talked to Al Unser, he's going to feel the same way about that 1978 car because that, you know, he, he won all three 500 mile races in, in, in one season. You can't do any better than that. Right. And, and Al basically, it was almost the exact opposite. He was like, yeah, we won all those races with that car, but me and that car didn't get along at all, <laughs> you know? And, and it was just, it was such an interesting answer because he, I mean, he basically told me that car wasn't, wasn't good anywhere else except for those three, 500 mile races. And I couldn't get along with that car. And basically I was, I was glad when it was all over with, cause I won those three races, but you know, it's just not, it just wasn't the answer you expected going in. 
After 1975, the scoreboard said Bobby Unser, two Indy 500s, Al Unser, two Indianapolis 500s. And again, making sure that in that competitive juice, perhaps he upstages older brother, Al Unser gets his third in 1978. Doing a fantastic job is Al Unser. The checkered flag is waved. His hand is in the air. Al Unser, the winner of the 1978 500-mile race. So he had three in the books, and then eventually we turn to the 80s, which not only becomes Al Unser's pursuit of trying to match A.J. Foyt's record fourth Indianapolis 500, but in addition to that, racing against a very, very, familiar name after his brother had retired with his third win in 1981 a look at the 80s for the four-time winner al unser senior that when we come back to beyond the bricks on 93.5 107.5 the fan two or three times we've seen little al slam the door on tom sneva and keep him from catching his dad i don't know whether little al's doing it intentionally or not but he's doing a great job of blocking (laughs) well In fact, he basically was doing exactly that. That was the 1983 Indianapolis 500. Tom Sneva was the winner in the Texaco Lone Star March Cosworth, of course. But late in the race, it was Al Unser that was leading the race, and Al Unser Jr. was right there in between. Sneva eventually got around him. Mike, I recall that race vividly, and everybody in the crowd was thinking to themselves, here's this young rookie in Al Unser Jr., and, of course, everybody knew who Little Al was driving the Coors Light Silver Bullet, which is a super cool-looking car, finishing in 10th position. But late in that race, everybody knew exactly what was happening. Yeah, it's not much not much chance to disguise that, right? I mean, uh, you know, he's making it as difficult as, as he could uh, without outright, you know, blocking or being dangerous or things like that but certainly making it as difficult as he could for for tom sneva to get by him obviously here is allenser jr's recollection of that his first indianapolis 500 with his dad running in the lead late in the race and just so happened that that um at the end of the race i was in a position that uh, that i could try to try and help my father win his fourth indy 500 and uh but tom sneva was just a little bit too fast and 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 dad was a little too slow <laughs> so uh but uh for the first time for a father son to compete against each other in the in the history of the 500 uh was a great honor and 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 we were truly blessed about it and by the way mike when little al joined the fray here in terms of the indianapolis 500 of course you already had bobby unser at that point had retired as a three-time winner al unser jr comes along al unser was uh you know a household name by then you told me something i never realized and that is that there has never been a driver to run the indianapolis 500 not named unser go ahead and finish the rest of the riddle not even not just the Indianapolis 500. There's never been a driver in a championship race in slash IndyCar race not named Unser with the letter U as the beginning of their name. So there's never only drivers with the last name Unser have driven in an IndyCar race slash championship race. There's never been another driver with the letter U that started their name. There was a lights driver a few years ago, Santi Orutia of Uruguay, who aspired to join that list and didn't make it. And so that record still 
holds true. And so you had, obviously, brother combinations running at the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But as you just heard little Al mentioned, here it was, father-son racing at the same time in the Indianapolis 500. And we got Junior's perspective, Al Unser Sr., his recollection on racing with his son. Well, it made it, you know, fantastic uh, that year. There's another year, you know, I should have been able to win. I should have won the race. But we were scrubbing the front end, uh, pushing the front end, uh, the late stages of the of the race that year. And, and uh, when Al and I got together at the last few laps, the last 25 or 30 laps, and Sneva came up and and uh, he was Al was not blocking for me. Al was trying to use the air. Al was a rookie and he didn't know how to block. He'd never done anything like that in his racing career. And in those days, you just didn't do it. And it it was the press that after the race when when uh, the press asked uh, Sneva. Says, was Al Jr. blocking? Yeah, yeah, he was. Well, he wasn't, and it always kind of irritated me. I mean, if you look at the films, you can see that Al was not blocking him. He was using the air, you know, on Sneaver, but he didn't block him. And uh, it was just a fantastic feeling to be able to have your son in the race with you. I mean, that's just something that... You know, I thought it would have, you know, would be easy to race against your son. You know, I raced against my brother for years, and and people would ask me, well, how does it feel to run against your son? I says, you know, well, it's going to be easy. I've raced against my brother for years, but when it's your son, it really makes a difference. I mean, it just absolutely, when things, when the yellow would come out, I'd press the button and and call in and say, was Al involved in that? You know, and, and so it, it just, it really uh, worked on, you know, my mind a lot more than I ever thought it would. Tom Sneva made that pass led from laps 191 to 200. I love that sound bite, Mike. I love everything about it because it's a father talking about his concern for his son when there were cautions, his pride and his joy in racing against his son, and his defense of his son when even his son admitted, yeah, I might have been blocking a little bit. Absolutely. It's one of that, that interview is one of my favorites I, I've ever had the opportunity to do because his pride in Al Jr. was so evident throughout. One of the things I got to talk to him about was when uh, Al won the championship against Al Jr., which is, you know, a, a great moment in the, in the history of IndyCar racing when, when Al won the championship subbing for Rick Mears and, and I asked him about that time and, and, and he, you know, he had the opportunity to basically, he could have let Al Jr. win the championship. You know, Al was the, the up and coming star and, and, and Al Sr. had just won the championship a couple of years earlier in 1983. And, you know, he could have not passed Roberto Moreno and, and let Al Jr. win, but he, you know, he told me, he said, you know, as much as it pained me to do it, I I had to do it. I'm a race car driver, and and I was being paid to to win, and for my sponsors and for my team. And you know, what he said, but when I got to Victory Lane and saw that I took that away from my son, it devastated me. I couldn't even look him in the eye, and and you could still feel the pain in Al Senior's voice years later, talking about how 
you know, he's like, he kept saying, I, I took that away from my son. My son could have been a champion that day. And, and you could still feel the pain in his voice. And so it, it was, it was a really poignant, poignant soundbite uh, talking to Al about that. By 1987, Al Unser was a three-time winner of the 500. Matter of fact, he was obviously that before that because you heard little Al talking about in 1983, he thought his dad was running for that magical number four. It is so well documented. It is so well stated, overstated perhaps about what Al Unser, what happened in 1987 where he didn't have a ride and he was around Danny Ungaius, who we also recently lost, got in an accident, and suddenly Alan Sr.'s phone rings. And, Mike, I know that everybody listening knows the story, but it is so darn good that it's one that anytime you mention Alan Sir, we have to tell again, and that is the unlikeliest and perhaps so fitting way in which he won his fourth Indy 500. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Al, uh, during that interview, told me about the fact that he, you know, he was, you know, look, he's Al Unser, and he's going to hold out for a ride that he thinks can win the race. And and I kind of think a little bit about, um, you know, you know, other drivers who are in that situation, you know, when you're presented a ride and, and you just don't think that it's got an opportunity to win. You know, are you just going to take that ride or are you, are you going to hold out? And, and Al, you know, during that interview told me, he said, I wasn't necessarily holding out for a Penske ride, but what I was doing was, uh, you know, I wanted a ride which I thought was capable of winning the race. And he, he waited the first week and then nothing came. And then what happened was Al Jr. didn't get qualified the first weekend that year. Um, they, they, they started, Al Jr. I think started, I think, 22nd that season. Um, so Al happened to be in town still. And then Danny had his, he had his unfortunate accident and was ruled out the rest of the month with a concussion. And so Roger Penske called up Al and said, I've got a good car for you. Um, it's going to have, you know, a good crew and, you know, and you know, these guys and, and Al jumped at the chance because he knew it was a car that could win. Uh, it, it may not have been, you know, the top of the line. I mean, they pulled it out of a, out of obviously out of everyone knows they pulled it out of a it was a show car at a at a motel in Pennsylvania so I mean obviously it wasn't one of their you know cars that you know we hear the term being you know massaged you know it wasn't the car being massaged because it was sitting in a hotel lobby but you know Al Unser knew it was a Penske car and it would have a chance to win the race and uh, you know that was the opportunity Al was looking for and. In the race itself, Roberto Guerrero, who in his first two Indianapolis 500s, uh, 500s, I should say, had finished uh, what or first three, second, third, and fourth. It looked like it was going to be Roberto Guerrero's day. First, it looked like it was going to be Mario's day, then Roberto Guerrero. And late in the race, Roberto Guerrero had to come in for his final pit stop. Earlier in the race, a tragic incident where a tire came off of Tony Bettenhausen's car, ricocheted off Roberto Guerrero's car. And that, unfortunately, haunted Roberto Guerrero late in the race, secondary to the fact that the tire tragically struck a fan. But it knocked loose his gearbox. And in Roberto Guerrero's final pit, he came in. He was leading the race. And Al Unser and that 
Cummins, March Cosworth was running in second well behind. And Guerrero stalled it not once but twice in the pits. And lo and behold, while they tried to push him out, out on the racetrack, Al Unser was at speed and car number 25 moved its way into the lead. And then history was made in 1987 when Al Unser Sr. became the second man to win four Indianapolis 500s. Bobby Unser was working for ABC in the television booth at that time. Jim, or, uh, yeah, Jim Lampley on the call saying, you know, your brother, Al Unser. And then Mike, in typical Unser fashion, when they put the headsets on Al Unser in victory circle and Bobby Unser could talk to him and Bobby Unser said what any Unser would say after his brother matched history in becoming a four-time winner, he simply said, boy, I'll tell you, Al, that was just really neat. And that was pretty much all of the emotion that went into it. But it was a magical, magical day. Yeah, because that was Al's word. Uh, the most you would get out of Al was it was really neat. And that was one of the things you kind of looked for. I mean, there's certain phrases that you look for that you, you know, you're, you're waiting to hear AJ say this is quite true or you're waiting to hear Al say this is neat because then, you know, you did something right in the in the interview because that was what Al said. Um, you know, he's very understated, and and uh, you know where Bobby, you know Bobby was a little bit, uh, you know, more willing to give you a little bit more over the top. Uh, Al was more understated, but uh, you know that was it was obviously a magical day. I mean, I felt I felt for Mario because Mario was so dominant. I felt for Roberto Guerrero. I still feel for Roberto Guerrero in that his life could have changed you know, in such a dramatic way by winning and everything changed for Roberto Guerrero in 1987. I mean, he could have won the 500 and then he obviously was, you know, critically injured in an accident. Ironically um, with a tire coming back. And yeah, yeah, right. And, and ended up in a coma. But you think about the fact that, as you mentioned, Roberto Guerrero's first four finishes at the 500 were second, third, fourth, and second. And then after that, he finished 32nd, 23rd, 30th, 33rd, 28th, and 33rd in the next few races. You know, I mean, it just was such a such a change about what could have happened in Roberto Guerrero's career. You know, so it's just it's just amazing how one thing, you know, ch- changes everything basically. And you know, it just you know, obviously, you mentioned the tragedy with with Lyle Kurtenbach, the the fan from from wisconsin who was tragically killed um by the tire just a lot of things obviously happened there for allenser senior he still had a podium left in him in 1992 he finished third one of the true gentlemen one of the true great racers lost in december but never forgotten allenser senior mike appreciate it we'll do it again uh on beyond the brick sound good sounds good to me all right have a good night everybody